Hello again everybody. Today we will look at two men who have fought against and identified the crisis level problems in the academy and from DC. Professor Mark Crispin Miller at NYU teaches courses on media and propaganda and what has happened in 2020 regarding that. And David Horowitz, once a Marxist, has spent the last 45 years telling us all what the left is up to and how to fight them. This is more on The Powers Broadcast. Hello again, everybody. This is uh, Jason Powers. I'm uh, coming from West Lafayette, where it snowed the last two days, and now it's uh, warmed up again to uh, about 45 degrees. So, yeah, just wait a while, and the weather will change. But speaking of weather, um, last night we uh, we found out that the the Floyd uh, trial was completed, and uh, the jury sat for approximately 10, 10 hours and came to a conviction on all of his charges um i'm not going to pretend that i have all the all the i didn't watch the entire trial and every bit of evidence that was produced and whatnot but i did see the event and i did see i um uh the capture of the video the the that was taken during the during the the floyd arrest and then the, the toxicology report and i could see the the instances of uh, media propaganda being infused into the situation because while I, I think the co- officer did act, uh, 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 Derek Chauvin did act inappropriately in, in terms of uh, his further restraint. I think if we looked at the, if we look at the, the actual situation, um, his, uh, his, his placement of his knee on uh uh, George Floyd's back, whether it be on the, uh, as some people have per- perceived it as being on the neck, some have per- perceived it on the shoulder, some perceived it as part of a military, or not military, but uh, police protocol, uh, and part of their training on handling suspects. However you perceive that, that's going to determine how you're going to respond to this and of course, it, it determines how you respond to it based upon the amount of uh, 
uh, media that you in, ingest and how you look at the events. I always thought that uh, the that uh, the situation was overcharged, and when I say overcharged, the prosecutor uh, the prosecutor's office intentionally overcharged Chauvin on this situation, um, and that was the the meat and the potatoes of it, from my opinion. Um, if anything, it, it should have been a aggravated assault, uh, maybe. Um, and then there also needs to be the fact that there was reasonable doubt that. Uh, that his uh, his actions would have in, in any way, uh, shape, or form actually, there was no murder committed by him. He did not commit an act that that is deemable as murder. Uh, there was no evidence presented that showed that his his action actually choked uh, George Floyd. Uh, there was uh, enough drugs in uh, Floyd's system that probably caused much of his problems. He had an existing heart condition. There were aggravating circumstances underneath of what Chauvin did, and Chauvin had no way of knowing those things. Now, do I think, like I said, could you have called it an aggravated assault? I think so. I think there was a. I think there's a case to be made there. And these are my opinions. Now, the jury saw what they saw, and they heard what they heard, and they decided what they decided. We, we as a country are left with a system that now will do stuff like that. Meanwhile, if we go back almost 30 years ago, uh, there was a man named uh, Orenthal James Simpson who was found not guilty of the charges placed against him after uh, numerous, uh, after a long, very long and drawn-out case showing that the, the best money can, can also get you uh, off in the case of uh, a crime so we're in this level of of a bizarre world in the united states of america this happens now would the case of floyd have uh generated this much aggravation and action if uh the the color of his skin wasn't in, interjected into it would have would have happened this uh would have this been the resulting outcome if uh uh, the current president Joe Biden hadn't interjected his uh, his statements in his uh, talking to Floyd's family uh, shortly before this uh, conviction came down. I don't know. I think we can surmise that there was a certain amount of that going on. When any time you have a, a a system where there's outside interference, especially from the executive branch, from the powers that be, and now that the DOJ is currently looking at doing some further analysis on the Minnesota uh, uh, Minnesota or Minneapolis Police Department <clears throat> we're we're coming we're coming to a head in this country that reminds me of um, maybe the, the aftermath of the Dred Scott case um, which is a reprehensible decision too and we need to we need to put that into perspective that we're we're coming to the point where we're um, we're falling prey to well this is being driven by DC is being driven by democrats and republicans who are are both both sides of the coin are corrupt manipulated compromised and the the only people that are uh, garnering any advantage out of this are the CCP um, they have they have interjected race in our society again they're the reprehensible ones in this matter um, 
They've bought out corporations like Coke. Uh, when I say bought out, they they're certainly inner. They certainly are influencing our cultural mediums like Coke or any corporation, you know, for example, that's aligned with the MLB or uh, football or the NBA. Uh, these cultural uh, pivot points are being inner um, influenced by outside forces by moneyed forces, billionaires. And, and like I said, and the CCP has money and they've been throwing it around the world and they're buying up, you know, they're buying up politicians. They're buying up people who have no moral scruples whatsoever, uh, whatsoever, no ethical, no ethical boundaries. They won't violate. Uh, they own and they own and compromise our president who is, who is talking from the CCP playbook in, in calling our country systemically racist, I'd like to spit in Joe Biden's face for that because he's such a reprehensible human being for that. Now, I'm saying that figuratively, but for him to for him to think after his uh, 50 years in government, where he's been part and parcel to any any of uh, any and all of this aggravation, he should be ashamed of himself to even say that he's not an American president; he's a communist president. And he knows that. I don't know why anybody ever, anybody who anybody who voted for him and didn't didn't expect it and expected good things to come from it, as was self deluded from the get go. They may have despised Trump for whatever reasons, and we can go down the we can go down the whole basket or laundry list of things that they would probably bring up as that that is the reason. But uh, they would be, I think, very errant in their analysis. But uh, I don't want to make this broadcast solely about those two things. Uh, that what we're going to talk about next is um, uh, actually David Horowitz, who I've uh, referenced in in some of my writings. I didn't know the man very well, but I did uh, do uh, excuse me do know his uh, works and some of the writings he's written about some of the Marxist uh, uh, progenitors. That are that have come up that have that have developed uh, the ideology and that invaded our our uh, educational platforms and academia. Um, in in particular, I'm pretty sure uh, if I'm not mistaken, if I don't remember right, his uh, analysis of uh, Betty Friedan, um, who was a well, she was a Marxist. Uh, she wrote the Feminine Mystique, and that has been used as a Bible for. Many feminist courses, uh, at least one of the entry, I guess you could call it the entry level Marxism. And then added add on top of that, the Jack Derrida's and all, all the other postmodernists that have influences the Michelle, um, Michelle Foucault and uh, the host of other, uh, what would you call them, cultural ant, uh, antithesis of the, the Enlightenment, I call them. They, are, they, have, uh, they have interjected a host of, of, uh, I call, I call it word vomit, but, uh, that's basically what it is. Um, they have, they have distorted and contorted our mind mindset in this country because the academia has been uh, hijacked by leftist influences. So we're going to start with, I'm going to read, actually, he wrote a book recently. He's released it. It's called the enemy within how a totalitarian movement is destroying America. And so uh, we are very aligned on that particular concept. I'll read, uh, this is from the, 
uh, from uh, from where it's posted. Um, it, it was written, or he's been cited, or his book has been, um, I guess you could say, lauded by Mark Levin. So there's a, a head point, but he called it "America on the Brink: A Questionable Election." The President of the United States illegally impeached twice and silenced the First Amendment hanging by a thread. The national heritage under attack, mob violence. America is on the brink of becoming a one-party dictatorship. How did this happen? The enemy within how a totalitarian movement is destroying America provides the answer. David Horowitz has been the Beta Noir of the left for decades on account of his courageous uh, revelations of their aims and tactics and how he sounds the alarm. The barbarians are already inside the gates. Horowitz lays out how we've ended up in the worst national crisis since the Civil War. He details the left's embrace of critical race theory and cultural Marxism, the underpinnings of totalitarian ideology, the decades-long infiltration of our education system by ideologues hostile to America, our institutions, and our freedom, why the Obama administration marked a point of no return in the division of America into two irreconcilable political factions, then Democrats' unprincipled campaign to destroy a duly elected U.S. president, their political exploitation of the coronavirus pandemic. Their complicity in the riots of the summer of 2020, which left 25 dead, injured 2,000 police officers, caused billions of dollars in property damage, and revealed the fragility of our civil order, civic order. As Abraham Lincoln so presently warned on the eve of America's last existential crisis, if destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live for all time or die by suicide. In The Enemy Within, David Horowitz provides a spot-on assessment of the threat to the American Republic and points to an escape route while there still is time. So this morning he appeared on a War Room, uh, Steve Bannon's show. So I'm going to play his 11-minute uh, um, segment. Um, and he, he drops a lot of truth bombs. Uh, Bannon also pushes back on him a little bit, but not much. Um, I'll let him talk for himself. With Stephen K. The epidemic is a demon, and we cannot let this demon hide. War Room. Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. Okay, it's The Enemy Within. The book is by the great David Horowitz. He knows about all this because he started off as a, essentially a Marxist and a communist and then through his own tenacity and grit and character, you know, saw what freedom was about and really became a fire breather on the right and, of course, an apostate to everything that he left behind. And boy, did they hate him. <laughs> they, they really hate the guys left behind. I just want to make sure we're, we're, we're clear on something. You weren't saying all black. You were saying people that are are black that are criminals that are being pushed by Black Lives Matter because clearly a third of our military, you know, the army is African American. You got the Marine Corps service members. I mean, just fantastic. You know, I come from a predominantly black neighborhood in Richmond. They're very folks down there are very accountable. In fact, they're the ones preyed upon by the criminal class. The great tragedy of this, it's the African American community that bears the brunt. Yes, the Democrat Party has identified the criminal element in the black community with the whole black community. That, that's part of their racism. 80% of blacks want more police. So that tells you 
that the vast majority of the black community is law-abiding. Okay. So, 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 David, and look, people know in the Socratic method, I, 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 got, Go I, I got to ask the questions. It's not my beliefs. And people in the war room, in the posse, blow me up. Bannon, you got – no. But I got to ask, with the Constitution being the greatest document, as Mark Levin tells me, and the Declaration of Independence being the second greatest, and, you know – uh, these great universities that all started as religious schools, Brown, Yale, Harvard, the great institutions, ones you're very familiar with, David Horowitz, with uh, the land-grant universities that all start with Lincoln, but the greatest example, so you got Berkeley, you got Michigan, you got Madison, Wisconsin, UVA, and others, you, or I guess they're not land, they're not, some of those are not land-grant, but you then look at the culture institutions, whether it's high culture or pop culture, you look at the legal profession, you look at all of media, uh, you know, the great uh, broadcasting networks, the magazines, all the newspapers, the political class. If it's all was also great, how did it turn out that the greatest industrial power in the history of the earth that's freed more people, created more opportunity? How in the year of our Lord 2021 do we have a situation that we have cultural Marxists, because that's what they are, cultural Marxists, in control of our corporations, in control of our media, in control of our arts, in control of our universities, in control of all the intellectual magazines and journals, and, 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 and basically all the senior political parties, and infested into the White House. How did that happen? How did we get to this point? One word, schools. I've been writing from the left in the 1970s, a- after they lost in the streets in the 60s, um, Part of what they did, to, they didn't want to fight uh, the communists in Vietnam, so they stayed in school. Uh, and the movement to turn our schools into Marxist indoctrination centers began in the 70s. I've, I've written five books about the communists take over the universities. Uh, I got virtually no support from the Republican Party. Republicans and conservatives just avert their eyes. They're scared. Uh, they don't want to be accused of attacking academic freedom when the left has purged conservatives from the faculty. Hang on, hang on. We're the party, we're the party of anti-communism through the 40s, through the 50s, through the, through, through the rise of Ronald Reagan, right, taking but, down the evil empire. One of the key tenets is anti-communism. How can the party of anti-communism not want to take on the communist infiltration or the cultural Marxist infiltration of our higher learning. They're cowards. Look, uh, what did George Bush, the first Bush in the presidency, he presided when the Berlin Wall fell. Did he take one victory lap? Did they go after the, uh, you know, appeasement? The, the Democrats had appeased the communists. They talked about moral equivalence that the United States was as bad as Soviet Russia. Did the Republicans do anything? No, um, absolutely not. They even opposed when Reagan was president and uh, he gave that speech, tear down, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. He was opposed by all his advisors. Uh, it's just because he was Ronald Reagan that he did it. Um, so the rod has been going on for 50 and more years. Uh, I was part of what I came to see as the hate America left. It wasn't about peace or justice. When the communists proceeded to slaughter two and a half million Indo-Chinese peasants after the left forced America to abandon Vietnam, there wasn't a single demonstration against the communist slaughter. 
And that showed me I was part of an evil movement. It wasn't an anti-war movement. It was an anti-American movement. And they then marched into the Democrat Party. I, w I was actually appalled at the time uh, because I st still saw the Democrat Party as a party of the ruling class. They marched into the Democrat Party behind the McGovern campaign. They established these uh, radical caucuses, the Black Caucus, the Progressive Caucus, and the Congress. And they proceeded to take over the party until they elected one of their own, uh, Barack Obama. He was raised the same way I was, by communists that hated America. The uh, difference between us is he never left the communist movement. Um, and now we, we have this basket case in the White House who's being manipulated. Kamala Harris's parents are Marxists. Uh, you know, you could just go down the list of... Uh, I actually wrote an article uh, called The Biden White House, A Diversity of Racists and Anti-Semites. And then I showed how each one of the people I named who are all at the top of our government right now are racists and anti-Semites. So, okay, that, so this, your, book, yeah, your book, Enemy Within, is a handbook for this great conflict against the cultural Marxists. But in the couple of minutes we got left here, David, what this our audience is so powerful because it's an activist audience. It's not receiving myself. No. We're totally interchangeable. But this audience is saying, what would you recommend today, in, in addition to getting this book and studying it? What okay, would you Donald recommend Trump, this audience do today? Donald Trump has given us a gift. He has created for the first time in American history a mass conservative movement. The tens or hundreds of thousands of people who attended his campaign events are a conservative movement. We have to take back the schools starting with, uh, from kindergarten on up. Why Republicans never voucherized all education and took the power out of the hands of the teacher unions is, uh, is really beyond me. We need to fight fire with fire. My book, look, uh, what is the Democratic Party dedicated to? It's dismantling the Democratic, small d, Democratic system. Uh, packing the Supreme Court destroys the checks and balances system. It just make, it makes the Supreme Court an appendage of the legislature. Um, opening our borders in the midst of a pandemic uh, bringing in 100,000 coronavirus carriers. We, we already know what we're in for. Shows their mentality. Uh, they want to abolish the Electoral College, which is part of the Constitution. Um, why? Because it forces presidential candidates to compete in battleground states where they don't have a natural majority. In other words, it forces them to compromise. Their war against voter IDs shows that there's a party uh, of uh, electoral frauds. That's what they want to carry out. How difficult, first of all, uh, there really is no voter ID problem for black people unless you're a racist and think black people are too stupid to get them. Uh, you can't get food stamps or welfare without photo IDs. You can't get prescription drugs. In any case, if that was the you problem... You actually can't go into Arlington National Cemetery without well, photo exactly. ID. Yeah. You can't go to a Democrat the, Party convention. But the solution be a government program to get everybody who needs a, a voter ID a voter ID, so long as they're not dead or non-citizen or a felon. And, and so, 
David, last last thing. What about what about uh, the corporations? So all all these all these um, all these uh, aspects that we did for the corporations, tax cuts, deregulation. How did the paragon of American capitalism become infested with cultural Marxism? Because now they're the most progressive, and the, the oligarchs are the ones beating it. Go ahead, sir. Oh, it, because the, when I came into the right, the first thing I said is, "Where's the ground army?" Um, I know the ground army is this audience, but it's also whom Trump has now organized. There was no ground army until Donald Trump came along. There was a mini ground army that the Tea Party started. But now we have a mass ground army to fight this war. Um, and, that, and that's what we need. We need to, and we need to call a spade a spade. They're racists. They're enemies of America. They're friends of, of criminals. I mean, it's a criminal party, the Democrat Party. Start using the appropriate language. Stop, push, stop calling them liberals. We're liberals. We actually believe in two sides to a conversation because we know we can win any political argument. They, they're the ones who are suppressing uh, dissent. And, and their goal is a one-party state, and we have to say it. They're fascists. The only Republican I have ever heard call a Democrat and it was a black Democrat, a racist, is Donald Trump, and he wasn't a racist. And the only Republican who's called the left fascist is Donald Trump. Come on, people. We can't win this war if we tie our hands behind our backs and make nice to people who really want to destroy us. So there's a... There's a snippet uh, from Mr. Um, or Mr. Horowitz. Uh, he's uh, had a long history of fighting against uh, these particular folks. Uh, he's got a lot to say about it, and I I concur with him that you have to wake up. This is a war. This is not something you can just uh, stand beside and just allow allow certain things to to, to take place. And and um. Uh, as I quoted there from his book, you know, as far as or the he cites uh, Lincoln, if you want this nation to continue on, uh, you're going to have to make some hard choices. The hope is, is that the left over not only overplays their hand, but um, puts themselves in a position where they'll they'll uh, trigger enough people who are complacent. Because there's enough people in this country that you know believe in the you know the Constitution and what the rights and and the the beauty of this country. I mean, I grew up. You know, I'm old enough to remember. You know, when Reagan was elected, I can actually remember when I was living in Tennessee in 1979-1980. I can remember in second grade voting, (laughs) having a mock voting situation where we were uh, asked to vote for, uh, and this was in Tennessee, voting for either. Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and I remember John Anderson was on the ticket too. The thing I remember, I think uh, Carter won overwhelmingly because you know kids know what they know. But uh, John Anderson got it got exactly six votes. I remember that. I remember that detail to this day. I wouldn't. I'm not citing a story just to be citing it, but and I think there's like 600 of us that voted in this this uh, mock election in our our, our uh, first, second, and I think third grade classes at the time. So 
we were in, uh, interested in in the concept of uh, of uh, looking at that. I mean, you know, at an early age, you're you're um, yeah, you can call it indoctrinated, but we're educated, and you're educated in in your belief systems towards uh, towards the future. They do it in China, in China too. Let's not be let's just be clear about this. People seem to uh, the fact that you don't support your country is inherently if you have this despisal of your country, you have to ask why and where did that come from. Um, for example, their their system over there is they've they've been indoctrinated to hate America, yet they send their kids they yet they send their kids send their kids at least the CCP does the CCP party members send their kids to university in the United States. If you don't think that's true, uh, well, I live in West Lafayette, Indiana. I see approximately five to six thousand uh, Chinese-born Americans uh, that are in our school system here or in our university here. I don't have a problem with that. Let's be clear about that, so that people don't make make uh, some uh, um, some light of that. I'm making light of it for the fact that most of these kids are 20 years old. Yet I see them driving around Mercedes. I see them driving around Porsches. I see them driving around BMWs. Where do you think they get that money from? It isn't because of something they've done. It's because of something they've been given. See, they're they're getting spoiled just by their... They get spoiled by their parents too. And they they grow up with a particular ideology in their upper middle class. And they probably have uh, uh, strong feelings, but they don't share about uh, Americans. They probably think we're complacent and lazy and whatnot. And they go back home with whatever viewpoints uh, regarding that. But they're they're trained from an early age to, you know, support their 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 country. Uh, they're even trained in uh, Maoist ideology, and they've also been trained that America's uh, sits back and takes advantage of the world and and stuff like that. Meanwhile, in America, we're having people because they've infiltrated so deeply into our country. They are um, they have subverted our entire educational system, uh, I, I, honestly, through uh, people like Bill Gates, who's, who's on board with this too, and other billionaires who have been on board with this. Uh, you'll notice who they, uh, who they always uh, use or who are, who are at the headmasters of these things. It's usually rich, white liberals. They are the problems, and I won't even call them liberals anymore. They're just leftists. They're... They are, they are people who have exploited the system, who have gained the system, who are at the top of the uh, hierarchy or the top of the Pareto system, uh, Pareto chart, depending upon how you look at it. And then they think they can demonize everybody below them and they divvy us up into these little categories and they get us to fight. And they're probably, uh, 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 quite a few of them are, are um, let's just say, unable to see how how divisive they are as human beings they think everybody and they do it out of guilt some of them do some of them are doing it because they they have other issues but some of them are doing it out of guilt because they feel bad for the fact that they grew up on they they started on third base and uh, and everybody else should be where they're at well take your guilt or your shame or whatever it is that that is bothering you and step off and do something useful with your life instead of uh, antagonizing the entire population. 
that's what I, that's the message I have for these, these rich white leftists. Uh, they, but they won't listen because they're, they're self-deluded. Uh, they're ideologically, uh, set. They call everybody else closed-minded and they run to their hustles like race and climate and a host of other, uh, quote, big ideas, big, they use big agendas to cover up for the fact that they're, they're basically intellectually naive and stupid and they don't, they don't know how to, um, they don't know how to share any good analysis. They know how to, what they do is they use cons and they buy people off and they, they sell on propaganda. So to the next interview, which is, uh, Mark, uh, Crispin Miller, who, um, who was attacked this uh, recently, um, this past uh, fall, and he teaches a course on mass persuasion and propaganda at the NYU Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. He has done this for the last 20 years. He's uh, now suing his uh, department colleagues uh, for libel after they signed a letter to the dean of school demanding a review of Miller's conduct. Um, so, he uh, does an interview with James Corbett, who you've, who I've mentioned more than once here, and I want you to listen to his uh, backstory on this, and um, we'll just go ahead and play it. There, it's a long interview, but I'll play about half of it, and we'll go from there. And see if I can. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, coming to you in the 20th of April, 2021, here in Japan, and today I'm joined on the line from New York by Mark Crispin Miller, who I am sure will be familiar to some of my listeners, if not a majority of them. Um, he teaches a course on mass persuasion and propaganda at the NYU Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development. He's been teaching that course for 20 years now, and he is now engaged in suing 20 of his department colleagues for libel after they signed a letter to the dean of his school demanding a review of Miller's conduct. And so today we're going to get into the weeds of what that letter was about and where it came from. Anyway, it's it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Miller. Well, it's it's a pleasure and an honor to be on this program. I'm very grateful to you for giving me a chance to tell my story to your audience. Um, it, it is a, an astonishing tale. It's, it is indeed the case. I've been teaching this course on propaganda at NYU for maybe 20 years, at least twice a year. It's very popular, but it's going to be necessary for me to talk about my approach to the subject because it has everything to do with what's happened to me. I don't believe in teaching propaganda as a kind of remote historical phenomenon, something the Nazis did and the Bolsheviks did. We get into that. But the main purpose of the course is to teach students how to perceive and uh, resist propaganda narratives in real time, or at least uh, to deal with narratives that are quite recent. Otherwise, it's kind of a sterile exercise. So as I explain at the beginning of every semester, this can be quite challenging because, it, you know, everybody can think of an example of propaganda that they don't agree with, right? Uh, but it's much harder to recognize it when it pushes your buttons, when you agree with it, uh, because you think it's just information. It's just news and it's the truth. Whereas, you know, the horrible Fox News is uh, pumping out propaganda that the deplorables eat up or conversely, uh, those, you know, pinkos at The New York Times, same thing. Right. So I explained to them that this can be difficult 
because it requires that you make an effort to be as impartial as possible, to pull back and get some distance on what you're taking in, uh, in order to um, you know spot the propaganda and um, you know make an attempt to think about it critically, to take a deep dive into the material, look at the other side of the story, and finding that is increasingly difficult. And then you have to be prepared to move out of your comfort zone when you do that. And I explained to them, once you start doing this, you um, may have a little trouble with your family or your friends or your roommates because you're now reading about things that you thought you'd made your mind up about long since, and you're discovering that maybe what you thought was, was, was wrong, and that can be hard. I've had this experience many times. I expect to continue to have this experience because I like to think my mind is still open and growing, and, and so is yours. Now, the last thing I say to them is that throughout the course of the semester, I'm going to be mentioning evidence for counter-narratives that may shock you, okay? I want to say at the beginning of the semester, and I will say throughout the semester, do not believe a single word I say. I am not an oracle, right? And I'm not here to propagandize you. If I say something that blows your mind and it makes you angry, just do me this favor. Go and look into it yourself, okay? If you find I'm right, you've learned something. If you find I'm wrong, bring it up in class because I relish arguments in class. If I'm wrong, I'll change my mind. So it, that's basically it. All right. This last fall, as I was beginning the course uh, and you know, illustrating the point that we need to deal with propaganda drives now ongoing, I said, look at the way we're meeting this semester. We're meeting by Zoom, okay? You hate it, I hate it. You know, They look kind of pasty and miserable, half of them, in their pajamas. I said, why, why are we doing this? I mean, why is this happening? Well, it's happening because of the COVID crisis. And the COVID crisis has been driven by a number of very powerful propaganda themes that we might examine. Now, in saying that, I don't mean they're necessarily false. Propaganda can be true, it can be accurate, but it's usually only part of the story. So this is something we could study. For example, I said, uh, we could take a look at the mask mandates, all right? You may be interested to know that all the randomized controlled studies that have been conducted thus far of masking in hospitals, I thought there were eight, there were actually 10. I said, they've all found that masks are ineffective as barriers against transmission of respiratory viruses. I would encourage you to read those. I also encourage you to read more recent studies finding otherwise. Now, how do non-scientists begin to judge the soundness of a new study? I gave them some tips. I said, you can um, look for scientific reviews, because new studies often include those. And you can also, and should also, take note of the university where the study's done and see if it has any financial connections to Big Pharma or the Gates Foundation, okay? So that's not a scientific point, but as far as the study of propaganda goes, it's very important. I said all this. That was it. All right. The following week, uh, maybe the week after, um, a student emailed me and said she wanted to join the class late. And I said, sure, as I always do. And she joined us. 
the second day she was there, the subject of masks came up again. Now, I had recommended, uh, for convenience sake, that they read Denis Rancourt's compilation of seven of those eight studies. I think it's very good. One of the students uh, spoke up and said uh, all kinds of hostile things about him and his study, and I recognized those talking points. And I said, did you by any chance read the column in Psychology Today about this, uh, this compilation? And he said, yes. I said, so you didn't actually read the studies? And he clearly hadn't. So we got into a discussion of this. I said, you know, this is, you, you jump to Google, you do a search, Google is going to bring up, first of all, uh, some kind of slanted story because Google owns two pharmaceutical companies. So we're studying propaganda, right? I explained this. All right. The next thing I know, this is a Thursday. Uh, I get a call from my chair who uh, kind of in an accusatory tone asked me if I told them not to wear masks in my class. I said, certainly not. In fact, I told them pointedly I was not telling them not to wear masks. Okay. He said he had to report this. I, I told him what I'd uh, encourage them to read. He reported me to the COVID um, police force at NYU, whatever it's called. Uh, all right. Then he told me that uh, a student was complaining on Twitter about my class. All right. So I went and checked it out. And indeed, the student who joined the class late had flipped out. She didn't say anything in the class. And she went on Twitter demanding that NYU fire me, okay, for putting them at risk and for what she called an excessive amount of skepticism around healthcare professionals, all right? Now, this has never happened to me before. I've certainly had students disagree, but usually in class. But it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, she was exercising her First Amendment right. But what was not acceptable to me was that, the, that my chair had tweeted his thanks to her and said, this is a verbatim quote, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. I mean, this just completely blew my mind. I mean, I'm in that department. I've been in it since 1997, and they didn't think to include me in this discussion. All right, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be brief, because it just gets better from there. You know, uh, I called him. I asked him to take it down. He wouldn't take it down. It's still up. The next day, the doctor who advises NYU on its insanely draconian COVID rules, which led to several lawsuits, and the dean of my school uh, uh, emailed my other students without putting me on copy and told them that I had given them dangerous misinformation, including a list of links to what they called the authoritative CDC, which of course had echoed the consensus of those earlier studies and um, reminding them sternly that they're supposed to wear masks on campus. So they didn't talk to me first. They didn't even include me in this. I wouldn't even have known about it if my students hadn't told me and sent me this email. And then after that, I was urged to cancel the propaganda course for next semester, which is this semester, on, on some spurious grounds, which I won't get into. All right, I had no choice but to do that, but I said I'm doing it under protest. Well, I, I couldn't let this go, James. Uh, this kind of thing is, first of all, unacceptable in any case. And second of all, it's way too typical of what's going on uh, all over the place. I, I dare say it's reached pandemic proportions uh, all over the world, especially as of last year. 
So some friends and I drafted a petition. We put it up at change.org. It's there. Thousands of people were signing it. And all it asks is that NYU respect my academic freedom and set a good example for other schools. But I did it in the name of all professors, all journalists, all scientists, all doctors, uh, activists and whistleblowers who've been gagged or punished for their dissidents, uh, not just last year, but really for decades. So it was a kind of shot across the bow. I said, my struggle is a flashpoint in a much larger, larger and more important struggle. And that was that. Okay, the response was gratifying. I went about my business. And a month to the day, I think, after the student came after me, uh, 25 of my department colleagues, which is a majority, well, I'll, I'll tell the story the way I experienced it. I got an email from my dean saying, at the request of your colleagues, I have ordered a review of your conduct uh, because, as they note, um, your conduct is very concerning. I mean, I, I, I had no... <laughs> All right. So I read this letter that he sends me as an attachment. It's the first I've heard of it. And it not only accuses me of discouraging my students from wearing masks and intimidating students who were wearing masks, which is sort of insane since I teach the course on Zoom and nobody was wearing a mask, but that was a jumping off point for uh, a, a list of accusations that begins with explicit hate speech, mounting attacks on students and others in our community, advocating for an unsafe learning environment, aggressions and microaggressions. This is a, a very succinct description of the opposite of the way I teach. Every single one of these charges was false. Uh, the dean, uh, when I contacted him, told me that he went ahead and ordered the review because NYU's lawyers had told him he must, which is, I think, significant. And um, the review was supposed to end in December when the semester ended, but it, it, I think it's still going on um, because I've heard nothing from them. I don't even think there really is a review because I've never heard from any students who heard from them. Uh, so anyway, as this was going on last term, I went through the letter with a fine tooth comb. I wrote a rebuttal point by point, cordial rebuttal, ending with a request that my colleagues uh, retract their letter and apologize. Uh, no response. I sent follow-up, same request, no response. And so I decided I absolutely have no choice here. I couldn't live with myself if I let this go. I take, I take my teaching very, very seriously, and I'm quite proud of it. Uh, so, indeed, I uh, sued them for libel. Uh, 19 of the 25 I'm not suing the junior people uh, because, again, um, this kind of thing has to stop. And I'll bring you completely up to date. Uh, they got themselves a lawyer. They filed a motion to dismiss. All these documents are on my website at markcrispinmiller.com. I urge people to look at them because in the motion to dismiss, they include a lot of exhibits that are mostly their own internal email exchanges about me. Um, so they filed this motion to dismiss. We responded with a brief and my own affidavit, and then they replied. That's the process. That's what happens. So as of now, um, at any moment, the judge could rule. 
He could either grant their motion, in which case we'll appeal, or he could deny it, in which case we'll proceed, or he could ask for oral arguments, which is sort of my favorite of the three possibilities. I'd like to see that. And uh, to that end, I've put up a GoFundMe page uh, because I'm trying to raise $100,000. I expect this to be a, a long and costly process because I'm not going to back down. And um, anyone who donates can rest assured that this money goes directly into an escrow account that my lawyer manages. So I'm not going to be flying off to Japan to visit you on the proceeds. Um, so that's that's what happened. And it is, as I say, a story the likes of which I keep hearing from more and more people, uh, especially since the year of COVID. Yeah. Sorry there. Um, so that's his story. Uh, this is a 45-minute um, interview that uh, James Corbett does. And you can see the difference in, in interviewing styles even between Bannon and, and Corbett. Uh, for example, uh, James is very patient. He he allows a person to tell their, their side of the story and what goes on. Um, there's a host of, uh, you know, you heard in this particular intrigue how someone uh, used triangulation. Uh, it's a psychological tactic where the girl came in um late to the class um there can be uh there can be a hypothesis of what she was there to do but uh she decided instead of uh, uh directly addressing the inform the the situation with the uh, the professor uh miller she decided to go to twitter make her voice heard um he goes into her background and uh, on her Twitter feed uh, later on. Uh, she's a B she has a BLM uh, f a support poster up. She's a white student. She's privileged. She goes to NYU, so she pays a heck of a lot of money to go there. Uh, and she's very vocal about her uh, beliefs. And she, uh, you know, brought this to the attention of the administration. This is a, a cultural revolution style uh, um, uh, situation. This is uh, Chinese tactics. Um, this kind of thing. So during the cultural revolution, they, uh, the students uh, started, uh, they were antagonizing and or uh, questioning. Uh, basically, this is what Mao did to uh, the professional, uh, the academic classes in, in uh, China at the time. Uh, he turned uh, the students against them, and they used to have uh, truth and reconciliation commissions or whatever you want to call them. They would uh, have public uh, public shaming rituals. They would, you know, uh, get the 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 academic or the pro or the professional, the older, uh, more wiser person. They would bring them out, and uh, they would you know ridicule them and uh, ostracize them and and um, and kill them eventually, in many cases. But they would be surrounded by the public and they would be humiliated in front of everybody, uh, told how their or their ideas were stupid. They'd make them wear signs. They'd do all kinds of nasty things to them. Well, this is just an upgrade of that. See, now we don't uh, we don't quite do it that way. We use social media to backstab people because we don't want to – when you don't have an argument, you just go and just uh, tell on people. That's it's. That's another. That's another aspect of it. It's almost a Stasi stitch. This girl didn't have the uh, personal uh, experience to actually address her her problems with the professor. I can, for example, when I went to school in the nineteen nineties, 
Uh, for example, I had a had a uh, situation where I disliked the professor and, and some of the aspects of what he had did, did at the very end of my uh, academic career. I sent him an email directly and I told him exactly what I thought of him. I don't think uh, I don't he uh, he didn't um, respond negatively to that. I think, as a matter of fact, he responded, well, I'm glad that you at least brought it directly to me. I didn't CC everybody. I was just upset at the time, and I was also a liberal at the time. But at least I had the moral stones to directly confront somebody through an email. Now, of course, we live in a society now where if you actually have a direct conversation conversation with somebody or a direct, what would you say, direct confrontation with somebody, and you argue with somebody, uh, there are weaklings out here. There are weak people that will go and use use your words against you because they don't they don't believe in free speech. They'll go run to the law because they'll know somebody in the law. Um, this is a, this is a these are all battle tactics that people use against other people. But we have another, like I said, the other side of the coin is you have people who will purposely run to Twitter or some social media site. And they will ostracize and demonize you unbeknownst to you. And that's the triangulation aspect. So uh, he was being triangulated by, uh, uh, by the dean of students, who was to, uh, to, or the dean or the, the person in charge of his department, who was telling him one thing but doing another. And then they were gathering uh, resources or other, other people in his department and it turns out that this is probably a long festering retaliatory response based upon his his prior um, uh, prior positions uh, regarding of all things real estate, <laughs> uh, which is which is to say that many people are are uh, antagonistic and they wait for the they they um, they they're resentful of somebody who actually stands on principle and when they find a. Per- particular situation where they can attack and antagonize you they will this is this is what our country's turned into and this is what's being taught in our schools by the way this is what's being taught by uh, many uh, female t- teachers who have been who have been abusing their power in in uh, K through 12 through their teachers unions to indoctrinate our kids to to be these weak-minded idiots who who base everything about based upon uh uh, the color of their skin or their oppression points or this hierarchy of this critical race theory or uh, intersectionality, however you want to, uh, uh, I guess you could say, theorize this is going about. It's the cultural Marxism that's uh, embedded in our entire culture by people who really have no business whatsoever teaching anything because they don't seem to understand that there is a foundation. It's called the, the called a country, and this country, uh, for all of its black eyes, also has good a good aspects to it, very good aspects to it. Some of the best aspects they they could ever possibly ever receive, and they they the fact that they're they're thankless and not grateful for that. Uh, they think they understand. They think they understand what other countries have gone through and other societies go through. They have no concept, no rep- they have no conceivable uh, understanding of how much abuse goes on in China, how much abuse has gone on in, under the Khmer Rouge, how much abuse has gone under, gone on under other regimes in Africa, in the Middle East, etc., where they, they, they kill people wholesale. 
and many of the, and the reason why it's so despicable is women are the last people to get hurt in these situations really now they do do it don't don't get me wrong women do face those kind of dangers but the, usually it's the men that they're that are are off first and foremost because if you get rid of a country's men you get rid of their uh, get rid of their strongest uh, assets to fight against this stuff so when people uh, people who are teaching this stuff really don't have to face any consequences for their actions, they don't face any consequences for their reprehensible stances on a host of things. Um, the idea that they're supposed to uh, not only uh, support the United States, they're supposed to put in, frame it in a, in a they're supposed to frame the situation in light of what is going on here. Our country has come a very, very, very long way. And the only thing that's happened in the last 20 years has been setbacks. Setbacks from the Bush administration, setbacks from the Clinton administration, setbacks from the Obama administration. What little uh, progress, I'll say, what little progress Trump could have made and has made or did make was just evaporated in one year. And you know why it was evaporated in one year? The Democrats and the Republicans in D.C., the Democrats primarily, let's just give them 80% of the credit. And the other 20% comes from the Republicans because they didn't do anything about it. The people that were involved um, spans the highest levels of political office across the country. Uh, every mayor in a major Democratic city, uh, the D.C. power structure, the CIA, the FBI, the DOJ, all these institutions that we used to put some respect into were damned if they were going to allow Trump to run the country and they were going to do anything possible to undermine him and the corporations, the corporations who lobby Congress, who lobby think tanks and et cetera, et cetera. It's so despicable that these people are even in power of anything, in charge of anything. They're despicable because they have no ethics. They have no principle that they won't violate. They have nobody that... They do it in they and they do it in a sneaky manner, which makes them more even more despicable in my in my viewpoint. They're sneaky, they're sly, and then they they have no moral compunction, because the only reason why they were were able to do this is because all of them like to coordinate together, and they used uh, they even use Zoom for cripes sakes. And who's Zoom owned by the uh, China? It's a Chinese owned op- operation for all things. And they've deployed, they've deployed these assets into academia, where they're where they're silencing discussion, they're silencing debate, they're uh, getting rid of anybody who doesn't agree with a certain ideology, which is another again. I thought the whole point of university was to be challenging and or to be challenged on your ideas. You can't learn if you're not willing to do that. Now there's some things I I I. I there's some ideas that I would think that are relatively, in my own mindset, relatively left of the, of center. But for the vast majority of my ideas, I would say I'm more a right leaning individual. If you look at if you look at the if I look at my various stances, they've they've uh, they've gradually moved right over time because the older I get, the more I realize I want things to not so much stay the same. I want them to. To for, I want the things that are very important to me and the very good to this country to stay in place. 
you know, we moved a long way on race in a period of 40 or 50 years. If you think, uh, take, for example, from 1947 when Jackie Robinson entered baseball, you know, and, and, and you know what people don't realize is while it opened up Major League Baseball to uh, African Americans and they may, or I will say black, uh, black people in general, um, there again, there's the linguistic thing that we're, we're fighting against. Open it up to a different, uh, a different uh, venue of people. The problem is, is if you if you go back, uh, the what was labeled called the Negro Leagues, uh, they were uh, they were destroyed by this this opening up. They had a that for twenty some odd years, from actually the nineteen early nineteen twenties, from nineteen twenty to nineteen forty seven, they were in operation uh, uh, teams. Uh, black teams throughout the throughout the South, throughout the North, uh, they were they were all over the country. They barnstormed. Uh, they had their own. They had to go through their own. Yes, they had their own uh, restrictions, but they also had their own freedoms because they uh, they functioned. They had a they fu- they had a functional league. In many cases, they were they were allied with uh, uh, actually white team owners. For example. Uh, the Washington Senators were uh, <clears throat> home to the Homestead uh, Grays. They used to allow them to come in. They, when the Washington Senators at the time would leave, would go on a road. The Homestead Grays would have uh, ball games there at the at the <clears throat> I forget what the Senators uh, Griffith, Griffith Stadium. This was back in the nineteen obviously nineteen thirties nineteen forties, and who was the biggest draw? Uh, the Homestead Grays had Josh Gibson, who is probably one of the top five home run hitters in in all of baseball history. Uh, based upon, he may even be number one, depending upon how many home runs you count. The counted count for him, and how you measure his his statistical analysis versus uh, major major league ball players of that time and others. Um, I'm using that as an example because the 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 important thing with anything that it, that we with every door that is opened, many doors are often closed, or many other things get destroyed. Uh, the 1950s, with the advent of television, you had the destruction of minor league baseballs, minor league baseball uh, affiliations and organizations. People didn't go watch minor league baseball anymore, uh, and teams then affi- corralled and affiliated themselves. Uh, all the major league teams would uh, suddenly had a farm or develop farm systems. What they did is basically you couldn't have independent minor league teams. They became affiliated with major league ball cl- clubs. Prior to that, there was a uh, very, what would you say, uh, very lively minor league system. So you could be uh, playing baseball in the 1940s, not in the major leagues, but you could be play- make it playing playing baseball for minor league teams in the late 1940s and making money and living your life the way you wanted to and you know they didn't make enough money they usually didn't make enough money to to uh support themselves all year round but that was their choice uh they had freedom there there is a there was a free market to it everything about certain um every every aspect of certain corporate uh, corporate entities has turned into this um I call it monolithic control of all aspects. Uh, the fascistic state, you know, I hear libertarians talk about, well, they're private companies, they can do what they want. 
they can do what they want within the boundaries of the law. And the thing is, is the law has been destroyed. Um, when they don't adhere to the American Constitution, I start to have problems with uh, corporations who exist. That's just a long rant, a side rant. Um, <clears throat> I guess, you know, I maybe <laughs> I should have structured that a little bit better, but I think you get where I'm coming from. So I'm going to continue and play a little bit more of this uh, interview, and then we'll wrap it up here uh, pretty soon. Let's see here. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately so. so. And, and obviously, obviously, I'll put, I'll in, put the in the links, links to all of those resources that you mentioned so people can explore this in, in more depth. And there are many, many people who have written about this. Um, Matt Taibbi, and uh, and you've been on podcasts talking about it. Rod Dreher has written about it. I mean, it's it's been all over the place online at this point. So people can catch up. Um, with the details of that story, but let's let's drill down on the the sort of deeper significance of this because I think we can all lament that um, the students in an undergraduate course do not fail to or have failed to live up to that quote that I think a lot of people still believe about academia. It is the mark of an educated mind to entertain a thought without accepting it, which seems to be like the basis for what should be happening in the classroom which I will parenthetically note, is not an accurate quotation of Aristotle if you actually read the Nicomachean Ethics. But the spirit of that, I think, is is what we hold as some sort of, some sort of ideal of the post-secondary education experience. But one can lament the fact that students may, may not be able to live up to, to that ideal. But the other professors, the colleagues in your department who themselves cannot see the differentiation between what you are talking about in class and what you are actively promoting or telling your students to do or something along those lines, that seems to be almost unthinkable that uh, the faculty of your department could have fallen so low and uh, fail to see that distinction. So I wonder how you situate this. Is this on the trajectory of sort of the general trend towards a stifling of freedom of expression in academia generally taking place? Or is there something unique about this COVID-19 situation? Well, I think I think um, all these factors are at play in my case in particular. Let, let me say first that you know, if you read their exhibits and their email exchanges, you see that there was a pattern. You know, not every student can handle this kind of analysis, right? Now, I rarely have had an experience like this because often the most resistant students in the course at the beginning end up being uh, learning the most and being the most grateful, okay? So this was kind of unusual in my experience, and I don't want anyone to think that this young woman was representative. She's kind of an outlier. But you can tell from their email exchanges that the, there was a pattern uh, whereby some student, some kind of snowflakey student would, would get all worked up about what he or she thought I'd said, and then would go rushing off to one of my colleagues and, and kind of complain about it. And I think that those students are the ones who have learned uh, well from people like my colleagues, because as, as it happens, a Japanese student of mine said to me a couple years ago, that higher education in the United States is teaching students how to take offense, okay, which I think was very, very acute. That's absolutely true. And students like this young woman are used to being rewarded for saying these things, you know. And, and the one day she was there and spoke up, she, she, we were reading Edward Bernays' classic propaganda, and, and she raised her hand, and I said, yes. And she said, I think this is a white supremacist book. And I said, well, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. For example, and she said she couldn't think of any examples because there aren't any. So I took 
the opportunity to make this a teaching moment. And I said, and you'll appreciate this because, you know, watching you has helped inform my knowledge of all this. I said, you know, it's important when you're talking about social or political issues, not to reduce everything to one factor. For example, in the 20s, when Bernays wrote this book, there was, a, a, you know, a very influential sort of intellectual craze uh, in favor of what's called eugenics. And I explained all that. And, you know, that movement, which was kind of cresting in the 20s, uh, that, that movement uh, really took aim at all kinds of members of the unfit class. I mean, Appalachian whites, Southern European immigrants, as well as black people. So, you know, I said, basically, you know, want to take a comprehensive view, blah, blah, blah. Well, I could see as I was talking that she looked nettled by this, you know. And sure enough, one of the exhibits uh, presented by a colleague who was, I think, undergraduate director was that she'd come to her office and complained about this. And the colleague said to another colleague, he basically called her a race reductionist. <laughs> okay, I didn't call her anything. I was doing my, my job as a professor to try to get her to think about this from another point of view. All right. So let me, let me answer your, your question in a more general way. With this uh, letter to the dean, uh, my colleagues have managed to hit me with what I call the censorship trifecta, okay? First of all, they accuse me of assailing my students with non-evidence-based arguments, okay? They say I went into class and said, Sandy Hook didn't happen, or the moon landing was a hoax, or 9-11 was an inside job. I've never said anything like that. You know, I don't work that way. But what they were basically calling me was a conspiracy theorist. So I got hit with that. That's the oldest and most effective means of, of silencing inconvenient opinion, right? As you well know, the CIA weaponized that phrase in 1967 to discredit writers who were throwing the Warren report about Kennedy's assassination into serious question. So, you know, your, your audience, if they don't know, should find interesting this fact. Uh, and there's a great book about it called Conspiracy Theory in America by Lance DeHaven Smith, that I actually solicited for a series I was then editing at the University of Texas Press. And it tells the whole story of how conspiracy theory became a thing. So they hit me with that. Secondly, with this hate speech and microaggressions, they hit me with uh, kind of social justice um, puritanism, you know, uh, that, you know, you can't bring this up. You can't talk about transgender ideology you can't question transgender medicine practiced on children, because if you do that, you are mocking and ridiculing transgender persons. And they hit me with that in the letter. OK, so that's the second. Uh, and I think now probably the most notorious means of shutting people up. And then finally and thirdly, as you note, there is the covid um, lockdown that if you question any aspect of the official narrative, However scientifically baseless and socially destructive it may be, you're putting people at risk, okay? They hit me with that, as the student had done. So they managed to hit me with all three of these things, you know. Uh, in, in a way, that's a source of pride for me. It's kind of a badge of honor. Uh, because um, if anyone is um, hitting their students with, you know, uh, orthodoxy and forcing them to believe it, it's my colleagues who do that. 
The only bright spot in this ordeal, James, James is, is that... that. So he talks about the three um, vectors that they're using to hit him on the the vector of uh, COVID, the vector of uh, trans, and the and the vector of uh, you know you know there's there's just a host of uh, I forget the first one. Uh, <laughs> sorry. But you, you gather there that uh, you know they're they're picking on him uh, from the 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 stand uh, the the idea that he's uh, he's uh, not using evidence. That was the third one, not using evidence to back up his claims, which is you know you know conspiracy theorist and 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 just you know rampant uh, wild accusations against him, and using you know uh, arguments you know the belittling thing. It's the, I, 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 it's a cry bully methodology. We have these people now that are so snowflakey, so soft, but yet they're so they're so pernicious in their in their undermining of an entire society because they want attention. They want people to to take them for their their viewpoints, and they've been they've been manipulated psychologically. This is being fed by as as this professor would rightly tell you, a lot of it's being fed by the the propaganda that's been pumped into their heads forever and ever. Some of these kids have never seen any truth in their entire life, honestly. Um, and when I say you haven't seen any truth, they don't go looking for truth. They've been told that they, ever since they were in, say, kindergarten. So this is 2020. So they were born probably approximately in 2000, 2001. They were basically born in not on when 9-11 took place. So since then, so when they reached first grade or kindergarten around 2007, 2008, it just so happens that happened to be when the, the financial crisis happened. And, you know, news, I would say news started to pivot, um, uh, in in a way on certain things uh, they had the the 2010 you had the the backlash on wall street the the what do you call it i forget what the movement was uh uh take you know the one percenter uh <clears throat> take back wall you know take back wall street kind of deal i forget what was it um what the movement was called off the top of my head and then in 2012 you had barack obama signing the the document uh, that that allows the mainstream media to propagandize to on domestic soil, uh, because there's always been propaganda. There's been pro- U.S. propaganda abroad. And now they're propagandizing here, and our United States media has turned into this uh, this uh, arm of the Democratic Party. Because, uh, as we know, and we should know, that most mainstream or televised outlets are decidedly left their, their newsrooms are filled with leftists they're filled with people who just came from came from university and they it, it, it's a seems to be a contention amongst them to see who can get farther left it's a it's a contest for them so as the kids have grown up so by 2012 these kids are you know moving into middle school and whatnot or you know fourth or fifth grade uh, from the time they were born and they're, um, you know, they're, they're used to be there. They have never probably been taught anything. I mean, from school, their teachers, the teachers are decidedly left. Their teachers came from decidedly uh, a leftist background. And then when they go home at night, they, they see decidedly left, left culture. 
Now, granted, they are the social media that people say, well, they get nowadays, most of these kids get their uh, views from social media. Well, think about it. Twitter is a leftist crap hole. It's an ideological ep- echo chamber. The people that have been censored off since uh, January uh, 8th have been all conservatives, or the vast majority have been. It doesn't mean that Twitter never bans anybody on the left. They do every once in a while, but for the vast majority, uh, vast majority of their censorship has been pointed towards the right. Uh, it's specifically on COVID and other other avenues. Earlier in this interview, he mentioned if you wanted to uh, dissect or analyze whether a source was good, was to look at who funds it. So if the Gates Foundation or the WHO or you know who are big pharmaceutical companies funding a study, you should be you should weigh their analysis with a grain of salt. If you don't look, if you can't delve into the analysis itself, like look at sample size and look at the the significant differences and how they set up the study. Was it a was it a survey which is can be inherently lied on? Or was it actually measuring something significant? Could they actually measure something? When they're just measuring usages for mass, for example, I mean, how relevant can that be? And I've looked at the RCTs on those, the random control trials, and I've looked at uh, uh, Dennis uh, Rancourt's uh, information analysis. I've used it. I've actually cited his analysis. I cited it early on when I was writing about the, the COVID crisis back this summer of uh, 2020. This was done just mere months after he started publishing on it. So I was, uh, I mean, there's been many that I've been looking into that are the same kind of uh, people who are questioning things. And when you start getting into the group of questioners, uh, you become a target. Now, I haven't been targeted per se, but I can see why a professor at NYU would be targeted because, um, yeah, he's pushing back against the COVID COVID narrative, he's pushing back against the trans narrative, he's pushing back against the people who say he isn't providing evidence when in fact he is, and he's being challenged by people who are, I I hate to put a label on them, but they're, they're Dunning-Kruger participants. They think they have just, they, they've taken a little bit of knowledge that they've gained and they extrapolated that they're an expert on something, whereas somebody like even Miller probably thinks that probably doesn't think he's the absolute expert on propaganda, yet he probably is more uh, widely read and profoundly understands it better than even anybody that I that I know of. Uh, and But yet he cites uh, James Corbett as an expert on it, and Mr. Corbett is. Um, I'm aware of the, uh, I'm aware of the concepts of propaganda. I know who Edward Bernays is. I've read, read his work, uh, but I would I wouldn't consider myself an expert on propaganda. But most of us can see it. It's um, emotional manipulation, uh, visual images, the things that are left out, uh, the 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 ability to push a narrative without actually citing any facts or statistics, uh, using snippets of words, uh, uh, fast edit editing, uh, cut you know just how it's presenting to you, whether it's a visual whether it's audio, you know, it's all about, and in a snort, a short, uh, short little catchphrases to like, you know, BLM, uh, how, what that stands for. Uh, the, the idea is, uh, by doing that, that's a way to, uh, trigger people to feel a certain way and do a certain thing. You know, that's, uh, you know, 
And of course, you buy studies and you buy analysis to, to support your claims. That's what Gates has been doing for you know, the last 25 years at least, is that he buys up professors, he buys up uh, university studies, he buys up the World Health Organization, and they pump out the they pump out the, the the studies to back whatever claim he wants them to back. It's it's quite a insidious insidious uh, situation because uh, there's many people that don't want to go into the depth of detail to find out who's 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 pushing that narrative to them. The same way they did with the the BLM and and how they pushed the George Floyd. And how um, magically, if you go to look at all the Gates websites, for example, right after George Floyd, then racism got inter- intertwined with COVID uh, to a large degree, you know, because they know that uh, that there are people out there that won't um, won't be able to discern the differences. Now, as uh, Mark here exampled, um, when you're looking at the, for example, the eugenics era. Uh, it wasn't just targeted to one particular set, uh, population. It was targeted to a host of populations that were considered lesser than other populations that were currently uh, in the United States in the 1920s. Um, but that wasn't; ju- it wasn't just happening in the United States. It's also happening in the UK and other places. Uh, we're well aware of, uh, if you look at um, the way certain um, certain echoes have come out of that era around the rights to vote and how women have uh, have uh, exploited their positions in society. Uh, Margaret Sanger, uh, the, I think her book, The Age of Civilization or whatever it is called, uh, it's a it's a eugenics track. Uh, and she she was a she was a, a once again another high flutin' white liberal. She married a, I forget what she married. She married a rich industrialists of, of some sort in the 19 mid 1910s and of course she was you know founder of uh uh basically founder of planned parenthood i forget what the name of it at that time uh it was a different it went under a different name before it became quote-unquote planned parenthood it was um something along the same same uh even more uh let's just say more despicably titled uh but I can't think of it. It's a abortion league or something along that line. She was, she was quite a virulent racist too, and but she also probably couldn't couldn't care two two wits about a host of people from Appalachia, and being somebody who is from Appalachia originally, I can understand that because many people still hold those, many of the people that still live in those areas still know what to think of certain people who come down there, uh, the carpetbaggers. <laughs> who come down there and tell them what to do. So um, I've rambled on quite a bit. I think we get a viewpoint of what, what's been going on. I think uh, Mark here has an uphill battle. Uh, he's hopefully fighting it, and he's fighting it through the legal system. And like he said, he figures it's going to be a very long and costly. This is where the the legal system has is, is failed us. It's going to be long and costly. And it may not even resolve resolve in any way, shape, or form uh, to his benefit. He may have to go through multiple uh, rounds of appeals uh, through the state Supreme Court and even up to the uh, SCOTUS level if he takes it that far. If he waits to get it to the SCOTUS level, it could be two or three years from now. And who knows what's going to happen by then. Um, there's a host of uh, things that could go on. 
So I'm going to leave the episode there. Um, I appreciate you listening to me ramble. Plus, uh, I think um, Steve Bannon, uh, the Corbett Report, and others like other outlets like them are, are trying to address the situations that are coming up. Um, I want everybody out there to keep the faith and try to uh, work on themselves. Um, realize when you're being culturally condi- conditioned and manipulated and realize propaganda. Um, I know there's a lot of people that are facing problems from their own kids and they're, they, they bring home these wackadoodle ideas. Um, I'm not trying to be mean towards educators, but it is very telling that many educators are, are trying to attempt uh, this control of the entire society through their wrong-headed thinking. I'm labeling that because, um, yeah, they've decided that they want to control this. They want to they want to be the technocrats in control, yet they have no concept of what it is to, to run a country or actually do hard work. They think because they're in a classroom teaching 30 kids, babysitting them, essentially. They think they've done, they've done some really hard work. Um, they're there in a capacity to provide um, not only the basic examples, but they're also supposed to be there to provide a moral example. But many of them have forgotten that. Instead, they try to indoctrinate. And the moral example is uh, actually being conservative instead of being this wackadoodle liberal that they think think uh, uh, somehow helps um, educate kids. But um, that's another rant for another time. Uh, I thank you all for listening. Um, God bless America. God bless the United States of America. And the whole entire world. Thank you very much for listening. Have a good afternoon.